You're listening to Season 4, Episode 10 of Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm Holly Hondrick. Today, we explore the rights of the LGBTQ community across the world. To add to this discussion, we speak with Evelina E. Coco of Queen's Pride Project and Slava Bortnik of Human Rights First before closing with a discussion with members of the Right of Reply team regarding the progression of rights of the LGBTQ community over time. But first, Quinn Giordano speaks with John Ibbotson of The Globe and Mail to talk about his story on Everett Kleppert, a Canadian man who is deemed a dangerous sex offender simply for being gay. John Ibbotson, welcome to the show. Hi. Nice to speak with you today. My pleasure. You've recently written an article about Everett George Clippert. Quite a controversial story. Could you tell us about it? Sure. Um, he's someone I had never heard of before. I think he's someone that just about everyone had never heard of before. I stumbled across the case more or less by accident while I was researching something else completely um, in December. Um, read about a uh, Supreme Court ruling that concerned him and just found it uh, an amazing ruling and started to research and pretty much been working on it with other stuff uh, ever since. And we ran the story on Saturday in the Global Mail. In essence, Clippert was working-class guy, bus driver, um, living in Calgary, um, who happened to be homosexual and who uh, who picked up guys. That was highly illegal in those days. It was a serious crime. Um, and he was caught, and in 1960, he was sentenced to four years in prison. Hmm. He got out, uh, went up north to a small mining community in the Northwest Territories, got caught again, hmm. and was sentenced to three more years in prison. Uh, but the Crown decided that, that was not enough. There had been recent changes to the wording of the Dangerous Sexual Offender Act, and the Crown decided that they could use that wording to get Clipper deci- uh, um, convicted as a dangerous sexual offender. So they applied, and the judge agreed. So this guy, who had done nothing more than uh, pick up guys for sex, mm. uh, was now um, sentenced to um, is effectively a life sentence uh, because preventive detention is, in essence, detention for life. Mm. Um, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in 1967 upheld the dangerous sexual offender conviction, so Clippert now did face life in prison. Uh, but that caused quite a furor, and it led um, Prime Minister uh, Pierre Trudeau to ultimately introduce and pass legislation legalizing uh, same-sex acts between uh, two consenting adults. That legislation passed in 1969. Clippert, however, uh, languished in prison until 1971. He then got out, essentially disappeared off the map. Um, he died in 1996 at the age of 60. Um, and unless you were a specialist in Canada's queer legal history or um, you, knew, you had studied the case as a, as a lawyer, you, effectively he disappeared. Um, I wanted to find out who he was, what his life had been like, what led to the events, uh, and what happened to him after, uh, what kind of impact. He spent 10 years in prison. What did that do to him? Because um, he was in many ways... He certainly did not want to be a martyr for the cause. He was, whether he liked it or not, the man who brought about the criminalization of homosexuality in Canada. Mm. He paid a very high price for it as well. So that's what um, got me on the story. So this story goes back quite a long way. The question that comes to my mind is, why is the new Trudeau government uh, raising this issue? Well, we raised it with them uh, before the uh, story ran. And we said, look... This is the story of Ever Clippert. We gave him the basic details of, of, the, of the case. 
and said the um, Pierre Trudeau could have pardoned uh, Everett Clifford uh, when he was Prime Minister, and he chose not to. But it seemed to us that this was an unjust conviction, that, the, that Everett Clifford had suffered terribly um, as a result of that unjust con- conviction, that he had, as a result of that conviction, uh, made it possible for same-sex uh, for men to, you know, who were homosexual to, to be free to indulge, uh, to, to be, to, sorry, to be part of, to, to be who they were, yes. I guess is what I should be saying. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that he deserved a pardon. We raised it with the Prime Minister's office. Almost immediately they got back to us and said, yes, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, agrees uh, that Everett Clifford should be pardoned. Um, and he'll make that recommendation to the Governor General. That's a pro forma thing that you do. Uh, but beyond that, he also wants to have a look, review of all the men who have been convicted of uh, gross indecency or buggery over the years uh, to see whether, in fact, there should be a pardon for all of them, because, indeed, all of them were convicted and suffered uh, for something that today is not, not a crime, but something that we embrace. Hmm. Has something like that been done before, posthumous pardons? Posthumous pardons have occurred. They are quite rare. Mm. Um, but they're rare in Canada. They're rare everywhere. But it is with the prerogative of the Queen to grant a pardon um, on the advice of uh, the Executive Council. So in this case, it would be the Prime Minister and Cabinet advising the Governor General. That doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. However, this if if we proceed with this you know, more or less blanket pardon, Canada will be the first country in the world ever to uh, retroactively pardon men who were convicted of, of mm. uh, sex-related crimes just because they were gay. Was that part of the goal was to kind of create a symbolic gesture on behalf of Canadians? Well, my goal was mostly to tell Everett Clifford's story. Right. Uh, I, I wanted him not to disappear uh, in, in, uh, because I thought he was an important figure in the life of our nation, whether he wanted to be or not, yeah. um, and that he deserved to be remembered. And yes, there were people in the story who advocated for a pardon for Clifford. I personally believed that, it, that the, a pardon was warranted. So we were delighted um, that, in fact, Mr. Trudeau uh, decided he would pardon him, and even more delighted that he was going to use this case as a catalyst uh, for a, a, a more blanket pardon. The great irony of Everett Clifford now is that to, you know, he was no Rosa Parks. He did not set out to be some kind of crusader for gay rights. Yeah. But not only was he the man who led to the decriminalization of homosexual acts in the 1960s, now, um, you know, posthumously, he's the man who's leading to the pardoning of hundreds, probably thousands of men uh, for sexual acts uh, all these years later. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the life of, uh, of Clippert. Um, how has kind of the course of his life illuminated changes in the uh, the attitudes toward uh, the LGBTQ uh, community? Good question. Um, it's important to understand that this is in many ways a class issue uh, as much as it is a, uh, a sexual rights issue, a sexual yeah. minority rights issue. Clifford was one of nine children, born on a farm, raised in Calgary. His mother died when he was young. His older sister, uh, in fact, was the sort of the surrogate mother for the family. He got a job um, as in a, working in a dairy, and then he got a job for eight years as a bus driver. Um, and and so he, you know, there were of course there were as many gay men in Calgary then as there are gay men in Calgary now. The, the sort of the middle class professional class mm. knew how to avoid detection. They the they actually typically would meet in the bar of the Palliser Hotel, and then they would go back to somebody's house so that they would, they would avoid detection. Clipper didn't know 
to do any of that. He sort of hung out in swimming pools. He'd he'd give guys a couple of bucks uh, for you know some uh, sexual favors. Um, he was obviously indiscreet because uh, police got wind of what he was doing. And, of course, he didn't um, have legal representation. He couldn't afford it, really, and didn't know how badly he needed it. So no doubt when the police said to him, you know, it'll go better for you if you just make a clean breast of it, he believed them, the idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and it led to almost a decade in prison for him as, as a result. Um, the, you know, the part of the tragedy of Ever Clippert is that um, is that he never really knew how he could have lived his life undetected, uh, and it certainly could have avoided a decade in prison if he'd uh, if, if he if he'd known how to work the system better. Mm. Now, then, after he got out, um, he uh, you're right, the times had changed. It was legal. It was still deeply frowned upon, uh, but he he. Um, uh, met men. He had uh, his his nephew and niece said that he would occasionally bring guys over to to see them. Uh, they were incredibly fond of him. He was their favorite uncle. No. Uh, but it was never the same guy twice. Um, the, when the, the sort of this the, the gay rights movement began to take off in the eighties, people tracked him down and said, you know, come and march in our parade. Come and tell us our story, your story. But he he wanted nothing to do with it. He got a job as a truck driver in Edmonton, um, and that's uh, how he lived his life. And in fact, he got married um, uh, later in life as he was approaching retirement age. Um, uh, to a, to uh, a woman who was older than he was, they both had health issues. She'd already been through one marriage. Um, I think they they needed companionship, mm. and 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 apparently they doted on each other. Um, and he lived uh, that way until he died in uh, 1996, just as the first big actual Supreme Court rulings that extended the rights of gays and lesbians um, to full equality and ultimately uh, to the gay marriage were starting to come down. Mm. So you say he didn't really participate in any of the activist movements that followed his incarceration. Did he give any political statements, Did, or was it kind of a political statement in itself that he didn't want to participate, that he just wanted to be a private citizen? Yeah, I think he would not have... He never saw himself as some martyr to the cause of gay rights. Yeah. Um, now, he was quite candid uh you know, psychiatrists who interviewed him as, as part of, they had to do that in order to get a dangerous sexual offender designation. Yeah. Um, he was perfectly open. He's, you know, uh, he said to one psychiatrist, you know, most people find the idea of homosexual sex and, you know, loathsome. I find the idea of heterosexual sex loathsome. <laughs> uh, he was just, so he was candid. He was frank about it. Yeah. That's what got him the dangerous sexual designation, offender designation, because he had committed sex in the 60s. Uh, he, you know, he'd been convicted of having gay sex in the 60s. He had been convicted again of having gay sex in 1965. And he blithely told the psychiatrist, yeah, you know, I'm gay. That's all there is to it. You're not going to change me. Yeah. So the psychiatrist went to the judge and said, well, you know, there's nothing that's going to change this guy. If you let him out of prison, he's going to go find men and going to have sex with them, yeah. which, of course, was a felony. And that's why he he got the dangerous sexual offender designation. He was, I, I have to admit, he seemed like a very very nice, quiet, um, although he actually was a quite jovial, um, happy guy in many ways, yeah. remarkably untraumatized by what he went through. But he was also <laughs> notoriously indiscreet. He's just said all sorts of things he should never have said. Yeah. He got himself in so much trouble if he just shut up. Was that the thing that made him unique, or were there many cases just like him uh, across the country at the time? Well, there were, I mean, we don't know for sure, but we believe there are thousands of men who were convicted of gross indecency um, and, and imprisoned as a result of it. 
uh, he was the only one who was designated uh, a dangerous sexual offender. Mm. The law that made that designation possible was was uh, put forth in 1961. He was the first and only person that it was applied against. And then, of course, there was such outrage over the fact that we had just sentenced a man to life imprisonment for for being gay um, that Trudeau, um, you know, introduced the legislation first as justice minister and then as prime minister yeah. to decriminalize it. So no one else but ever ever could but ever had that designation um, slapped on him. Mm. So what was the reason for for taking such pains to try and uh, put this man in prison? Was was there a political activism on the other side? No, it, he. Had, he, one of the many, many mistakes that ever Clifford made was when he got out of prison the first time, he should have gone to Toronto or Montreal. Mm. Uh, big cities, uh, large gay communities, an infrastructure. He could have disappeared um, and avoided detection if he had done that. Instead, he went to a small mining town in, in the Northwest Territories where, of course, his activities were going to be highly visible. Yeah. The Crown, we interviewed um, the Crown attorney who applied to the dangerous sexual offender designation uh, Patrick Searle, and Searle said that at that time, there was a lot of concern in the government of the Northwest Territories that um, you know, the, the criminals, uh, especially sexual offenders, uh, were coming up into the North and using its isolation in order to do bad things. Mm-hmm. He had himself just finished prosecuting a pedophilia case, and he said he didn't, he didn't want um, you know, people coming up and using the North uh, and exploiting the people of the North um, for their sexual peccadilloes, and the Clippers seemed to be a classic case of that, so he wanted to make an example of them. Yeah, that the approach to LGBTQ uh, issues in the community has changed over time. Well, like, along with everything else, it's, it's just become uh, much more acceptable. Um, you know, when I got into journalism in the 80s, it probably was a career-limiting move to be openly gay, at least in, in some newsrooms it would have been considered a career-limiting move. Yeah. Today, of course, it's nothing of the sort. Um, and I think the attitude of journalists towards um, L- uh, uh, LGBTQ issues uh, is much more you know, enlightened now than it was then. Um, again, this is a story. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 I sent a memo to the Golden Mail the first day I got back to work after New Year's and said, you know, we should go see if we could figure out whoever Clifford was. They embraced the story instantly, yeah. um, backed it 100%, sent me out to Calgary to interview family members, and as you saw on Saturday, gave it a, a you know, huge play, uh, and again uh, uh, today uh, in the follow-up story. So, you know, you can ask, would the Globe have done that uh, 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. No way to say for sure. But do you think that one of the things that might have changed it was... Uh well, I wouldn't know if, if this is uh, something that exists at the Globe, but uh, uh, the kind of sensitivity and anti-oppression training that are sometimes associated with uh, media outlets, is that something that could have changed perspectives, or is it kind of a, a broad cultural shift that we're seeing? I think it's more broad cultural shift. If there has been sensitivity training at the Globe Mail, I missed the seminar. <laughs> I see. Um so this is, in, in many ways, kind of an inspiring story, uh, separate from, from the question of, uh, of gay rights, but just on the, on the basis of uh, kind of human endurance and uh, all of those kind of qualities of honesty. Do you see this, uh, this story kind of recapitulated in, in other media, or, 
or perhaps well, looks dramatized. As the, uh, looks as though the other guys are chasing it, uh, which is always a good thing. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's an important story in and of itself. The mere fact, uh, as a policy question, that the government has decided to um, uh, to, to move on a, on a pardon uh, yeah. is, is important. It's now going to become a question, uh, a policy issue for the government. We'll be able to, resources will be dedicated to it. The justice minister will have it as one of her files uh, and all of that. But for, um, just as a reporter, um, for me, the most important thing was rescuing Everett Clifford um, uh, you know, from, from obscurity and yeah. finding out who he was and, and uh, introducing him to people and saying, look, you don't know who this guy is, but he's had a huge impact on the life of our nation. Inadvertently, but he's had it nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's, what's next to follow in this story? Well, we'll be following this particular case is obviously there there are all sorts of issues um do you f review each and every file um and then decide whether a pardon is warranted or not that would take an enormous amount of resources because the files are are in most cases with the actual courthouses so you would have to get every courthouse in every community in canada to go back into its archives um and and you know look up cases of gross indecency or buggery. Buggery is very, very rare, almost unheard of. They're almost all gross indecency. Um, in many cases, those files would have been sent to provincial archives, so you would have to get the provincial archives to look. Um, in many cases, uh, you know, files back then, we didn't have the historical um, fascination that we do today, so a lot of files just got thrown out. They may be lost completely. Um, so one alternative would be to have a blanket pardon and just say, all right, if you were, you know, if you were convicted of gross indecency, uh, you're pardoned. But that's problematic because there may be a few instances where actual violence occurred or whether um, there was sex with a minor, and we wouldn't want to pardon those men. So you would need to find a wording um, that pardoned those who deserved a pardon, but without uh, exonerating people who had committed. Uh, what even today would be considered, you know, terrible offenses. Um, so there's going to be all of that, uh, and we'll be we'll be following that as well. There, it also opens the issue of um, where is this government on other priorities uh, that are of, of concern? Where the, where is this government on transgender issues? No. There is the issue of uh, age differentiation. Uh, you have to be older to have uh, anal intercourse than to have vaginal intercourse. Um, is that a form of discrimination in and of itself? There's also the issue of people who were persecuted in the public service. There's the issue of people who were dishonorably discharged from the military and who today can't get pensions or, or anything just because they were gay. So there's there's there is still lot on the agenda, and one of the things that the Clifford case does, I think, will be to put that agenda closer to the front burner than it would have, might have been otherwise. And that's a cool thing. And to attach a face to that kind of issue. Absolutely, more than anything else, uh, and that's what journalism should do: try to try to describe the stories of people rather than just cold, you know, cold-blooded issues. Oh, we look forward to following that. Moving to the end now, uh, do you have maybe just a, a core message that you think people should take away from this story of Everett Clifford? I think there may be a couple. Um, if you'll forgive me, one is Feel free. that. Um, well, look. Obviously, there's the, there's the issue of Everett himself that he's uh, we hope now uh, not lost to history. There is the the importance, especially for younger uh, listeners, to remember that we don't exist in a vacuum. That things are the way they are today, good and ill, as a result of things that that occurred in the past. And we we shouldn't lose that past. We have an obligation to 
to dig into it and to respect it and to honor it um, where it deserves honor and respect. Um, and finally, um, I, I say this uh, the day after Spotlight uh, won the Academy Award. This story took a lot of resources. It, it took uh, weeks of my time. It took trips out to Calgary. The Globe's editorial research department worked flat out on this story as well, especially in the early stages. We were trying to find people. It took enormous resources. Um, a, a good newspaper has those resources. Uh, but we live in challenging times, and one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, uh, without the resources of the Globe and Mail, would we be able to tell um, uh, Edward, Edward Clipper's story? Um, and how are we going to find the resources to tell those stories going forward? Because this is what good newspaper, this is what good journalism does. From the Globe and Mail, that was John Ibbotson. Help CFRC Radio help the Queens and Kingston community. Your donation to CFRC Radio empowers the volunteers of our community. CFRC provides free PSAs for local nonprofits and community events, and free training and support for volunteers at the station. Support CFRC, Kingston's volunteer-powered radio station. You can donate in person by dropping by the station at Laura Crothers Hall on Queen's campus or online at cfrc.ca. Okay, so we're here in studio with Evelina. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, can you first tell us a little bit about how you got involved in Queen's Pride Project and what the goals of your um, board are? This year it's six people who work together to create Pride Month, which is a series of events that occur in the month of March at Queen's, and that also include the Kingston community. So this year we're like about to start our Pride Month as of the Friday, and it's looking really exciting. We've got like a really great series of events coming up, and that's basically what we do. So can you tell us a little bit about the events that you'll have coming up next month? Yes. Uh, our first event is on Friday. It's on March 4th, and it's an open mic uh, featuring Kai Cheng Tom, who is a po poet and journalist from Montreal. She is an incredible artist. She's going to be our keynote performer and also our MC. And she's also hosting an event the next day called Giving Birth to Yourself, Revolutionary Storytelling for People of Color. That's on March 5th from 2.30 to 4 p.m. in Watson Hall, room 401, where it's a closed session for people of color from Queens and the Kingston community to learn about writing. And it's going to have a queer focus as well, but it's not exclusive to queer people. It's also available to any people of color who are interested. So that's gonna be really cool. And those are our first two events. We also have a series of films being shown and our series is called Queerness of Another Color, revisiting racially diverse LGBTQ plus themed drama films. And that's gonna be all the way from March 6th to March 19th. And it's all 6.30 to 8.30 PM in Sterling Auditorium. The films include Tangerine, which is a really famous film that just came out and it was filmed entirely on an iPhone that features like several trans women of color as the central actors and like or actresses in this and the central like characters so it's not trans women being played by cis men or by cis people at all which is really exciting it shouldn't be but it's very unusual because a lot of the times people are cast who really aren't representative of that community and you can check that out on our Facebook we also have a Q&A and a film screening for What I Love About Being Queer and a reading from She of the Mountain by Vivek Shreya, who's an incredible artist and writer and performer from Toronto. And a lot of her work has been featured in textbooks. She's toured a lot of different university campuses before, and she's really cool. So it's going to be super exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our big ones is coming up is our Gender and Sexual Diversity Resource Fair which is basically just 
an accumulation of all the different LGBTQIAP2S organizations in Kingston and in uh, Queens. And it's going to be really cool. It's March 16th, which is a Wednesday, uh, from 1 to 4 p.m. in McLaughlin Room in the JDOC. And it's really exciting. It's basically just an opportunity to network, to see what organizations are out there, to get involved for next year. So if that interests anyone, definitely come on out that day. So what do you think is the greatest challenge for the LGBTQ2SIAP community at Queen's? Um, it's very difficult to name oh, thank you. Sorry, it's very difficult to name one specific challenge for the LGBTQ2SIAP community at Queen's just because it is such a profoundly diverse community with so many different members from so many backgrounds. Um, I think that definitely one of the big issues would be transphobia and transmisogyny because a lot of the times the cisgender members of our community tend to not prioritize or center the narratives and experiences and lives of trans people and especially of trans women, especially trans women of color. And because Queens is such a white school, we're predominantly white school and predominantly upper class school, there is often a lack of awareness about the specific challenges facing like people of color, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people who are more marginalized like because of their gender identity. So just making those things the priority, I think, is a serious issue and something that doesn't happen enough at Queen's. I feel also that there just aren't enough resources out there for queer people of color, for trans people of color that can be accessed. Like there aren't a lot of resources in general for the LGBTQ2SIAP plus community, and especially not for those who are marginalized on the basis of race or who have a disability or who are trans specifically because a lot of the stuff is for cis people. So I think making those a priority in our organizing is one of the best ways that we can address that. And I think that's something the university should take on as well. So it, are these challenges any different than uh, the challenges at other universities? Like, do you, do you see a difference between Queens and other universities or maybe another university or college campus is doing something differently that you'd like to see here? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I've never actually attended another university, so I can't really speak right. too intimately on that. But I think like, I've heard very good things, for example, about York University, where there is a much higher like level of just like diversity amongst the student population in terms right. of race, in terms of like, in terms of class background. It's like, I think just the lack of like I think the lack of like lower income and like people like people of color makes it difficult in general at this school to create to like work for real change to work for like for real solidarity just because there's an absence there and of course knowing about that absence a lot of people choose not to come here so I think it's difficult to really affect those changes in the same way on on such a large scale when there just aren't as many people from those communities but I definitely think like something we could do is increase the diversity of the of the professors and of the administration at the school because often when we talk about diversity it's always on the it's always on the topic of like oh we need to bring in more students who are poor and more students who are people of color and stuff but i don't think that's sufficient i think when you like enter your classroom and it's consistently like a white professor usually like like a professor who assists and who's straight although not always it can be a bit disheartening as a marginalized person to see that, it feels like there's no place for you in academia. And I think that's something that happens a lot at Queens. Speaking from personal experience as an English major and as like a fairly white passing person of color who's mixed race, I definitely noticed like an absence of professors of color 
In fact, I've never had a professor who was a person of color in my time at Queen's, and I've been informed by several profs in the English department that there are only two professors of color in that department. So that definitely is an absence that I would like to see addressed, and that's something very tangible that the university could do to immediately make this a more like accessible and more safe and more affirming place for marginalized students, and I think that would help with the LGBTQ community in general. Even though it's not going to affect everyone in the community, it would make it a better place for those of us who are people of color, for those of us coming from lower background, like lower income backgrounds, to have that very visual representation in like the university itself. How do you think that heteronormativity is manifested here at Queen's? It's very difficult to respond to that for me because I am a gender studies minor, so definitely in that respect we, we do talk a lot about heteronormativity, about like queer experience, about trans experience, about the LGBTQ, uh, L- L- LGBTQ to SIAP plus community. Like those are topics that are very central in that department. But outside of that, I guess there's kind of an absence of any discussion of those identities, of any ex- the expectation that people from those marginalized groups exist at all. And I think that that's something that I think I would like to see change. I think if it were more required that students of all like backgrounds in terms of their courses that they're taking in terms of their programs were ex- were like required to take some kind of course or some kind of training in terms of like like just basic terminology, basic experiences, like like histories, the learning more about the way systemic inequality functions on a variety of platforms and intersects. I think that would be an incredible way to really change the atmosphere here at Queens. I think like heteronormativity is predominantly like perpetuated through erasure and through silence. And I think having a discussion would make a huge difference. And that discussion can't really occur if only a small subsection of the school is even part of it, which is what happens when you have the gender studies department only as electives, only as like something you can specifically major or minor in, but not something you otherwise really might get into. I think if it were something that all programs had some sort of mandatory training in, even if it were just a couple lectures, that would really change things here. You've talked a lot about opening up the discussion, and I'm wondering what you think the role of um, celebrities in the media is in in doing that. I recently watched an interview on Ellen where President Obama came on, and Ellen thanked him for helping um, make legislative changes for gay rights, but um, he he responded by saying that um, Ellen was one of the people to change the hearts and the minds of Americans the most. And so to me, it seemed like he was um, really emphasizing the role of celebrities and of culture um, as a way to complement legislative changes. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. I'm always hesitant to advocate like the worship of, of any celebrity, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, their race, etc. Because I think that that's like they, they still represent a class that's typically like unattainable to most people. But on the other hand, I think that one of the most profound influences on the lives of young LGBTQ2S IAP people is celebrity culture, especially at a young age when like the first exposure to identities outside of like heterosexuality outside of being cisgender like occurs i think that's the first time a lot of us ever see a reflection of ourselves and i think that's why it's very important that queer celebrities that trans celebrities that bisexual and gay and pansexual and asexual celebrities are out there like having their voices heard talking about their experiences they might not be the perfect advocates with the most academic knowledge sometimes they say ignorant things 
but they can still be a gateway. They can still be an opportunity to see oneself reflected. Because when you don't see yourself reflected, you don't, like, you don't exist, essentially. You feel like you are invalid in your existence. And the first way in which a lot of us realize that that's not true is when we see that one celebrity coming up on television and being coming out or just talking about their experiences, when they create films about their experiences, when they write books. And it doesn't have to be, oh, the tragic narrative of like the gay or trans character or whatever. It doesn't have to just be like this is about this specifically, but seeing characters, for example, in How to Get Away with Murder, like Annalise Keating is like a dark-skinned bisexual like black woman who is just like so complex and so emotional and like beautiful and clever and kind of messed up in many ways because it's a pretty (laughs) messed up story but like she's really a very human character and that I've heard so many people talk about that as being profoundly influential on them and how much it meant to them that she was bisexual, how much it meant to them that she's dark-skinned and that she's an older woman, that she can still be considered, like, desirable and beautiful and clever and, like, interesting. Like, that's... And, like, she talks... The the actress, Viola Davies, talks a lot about, like, the way that you can't... Like, you, you need to see yourself and then also that you need to have roles in order to, like, be seen. So I think when celebrities are out there talking about those things and having those conversations, that, like, making that... a like a cultural topic, I think that's like one of the most influential things. So even if it's not like the end all be all of what our community should be about, it's still the way that like people in the mainstream are forced to confront this, that the way that people who are marginalized get to see themselves. So I think that's really important. What is the most powerful change that you've observed? <sighs> that's such a difficult question. And I think that's actually the most difficult question on this because, oh, sorry. Um, because it's very difficult to like narrow it down to one thing. There's an entire world, an entire globe out there where different like triumphs and different failures are occurring every day. I know a lot of people might might like like just jump to like marriage equality in the United States or marriage equality in Canada or something, but I wouldn't say that that's the most important. I think it's wonderful and exciting, but it's an apparatus of the state. It isn't necessarily making a difference in the lives of people who are more marginalized in other ways besides just their sexual orientation. I can't necessarily name one thing that would be a triumph, but I think just the fact that we have the internet is a really big thing for me. The fact that you can reach out and have conversations with people like organize together, get the word out, like create events, like create protests, uh, pride events, like that that it can be done so quickly. I, th- I know that that isn't like directly an LGBTQ triumph, an LGBTQ2SIAP plus triumph, but it is a way, it's an apparatus, it's a tool that is allowed for a lot of organizing that goes beyond just like one particular context that can globalize our struggles, that can allow for solidarity across like many boundaries, that can help people to get the word out when hate crimes are occurring or when their governments are oppressing them, that can allow people to celebrate with each other. I think it's really exciting. So I think just the, the amount of connectivity that we have has made a huge difference, has allowed for those leaps and bounds that we can all work together. I think that's amazing. Follow CFRC on Tumblr for unique posts, pics, and information, including playlists for your favorite shows, CFRC's charts, vintage photos, audio recording and production tips, in-studio music performances, and more. Another great way to connect with your local campus and community radio station is at your fingertips. Just make your way to cfrcradio.tumblr.com and click follow.
Today, Red Reply is joined by Slava Bornick. Born in Belarus and now relocated to Washington, D.C., Slava is a human rights and LGBT activist. Slava works with Human Rights First, an organization that is aimed to make human rights of the LGBT community a foreign policy priority of the U.S. government. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Slava. Belarus House of Commons, or House of Representatives rather, um, they're working to pass a bill that what you've called a Russian-style anti-propaganda bill that will potentially limit the free expression of LGBT people by forbidding the dissemination of any information that would discredit the institution of family and marriage to children. So can you tell us more about the bill and talk about why this anti-propaganda bill specifically targets the rights of the LGBT, LGBT community? So we recognize that um, this is another example of Russian-style propaganda deals. So it's drafted a, a, a way, a little bit away as a Russian deal, but not exactly. Um, this, the Belarusian deal, is more nuanced, I would say. It doesn't use uh, terms homosexuality or LGBT or gay. But instead, it talks about um, the defamation, uh, uh, discrediting of family values. So it's um, really, that's why it was, um, the first reading went almost unknown, unnoticed, because people didn't know that it, it can be targeting homosexuals. Yeah, so on that note, um, in your article, you do talk about how the bill's goal is described as protecting children from information harmful to their health and development. So I think it's sort of a common trend that um, LGBT debates are frequently shaped around the impact that it will have on children. Um, why do you think this is the case? Is it harder to, does it make it more difficult for bills to, to fight against bills that are sort of targeting the protection of children? But I think it's, uh, that everyone agrees that children should be protected in some way. Yeah? And when they use this phrase, something about protection of children, it's easier for them to build support down, uh, around this kind of legislation. So it's just a kind of psychological moment that people feel like their children have to be protected. In your article, you talk about how the bill has gone sort of completely unnoticed because of the recent presidential elections. What do you think the role is of the media, both in U.S. and in the Be Belarus, for these human rights battles? Mm -hmm. uh, the situation with the media is a little bit different in Belarus. Uh, in Belarus, media is completely under control of the government. Uh, the independent media outlet, outlets are very few. Let's say there are only two printed newspapers, independent newspapers in Belarus, and circulation is very, very low. And there is no such a thing as independent TV in Belarus. The only independent channel broadcasts from Poland. So basically most people receive information from the uh, government-controlled media. And for years, and still, until now, and still now um, media is very homophobic in Belarus. Uh, we can see some positive change within the small se sector of independent media. Uh, I, I would say that um, they're changing their 
perspectives and depictions of LGBT people. It goes very slowly, but it happens. How would you compare the uh, media depictions of the LGBT community in Belarus compared to the United States? Since you've relocated to D.C., I wonder if you think that um, the types of images that are portrayed in the U.S. media are positive or if they um, propagate some of the stereotypes of um, homosexual people that have proved negative to um, achieving their rights. I would say that in general... So I um, I moved to the U.S. Uh, two years and a half ago. So I would say that um, the U.S. media is um, uh, pretty objective and um, realistic in depiction of uh, LGBT people and uh, and LGBT lifestyles. Uh, compared to Belarus, the uh, situation is a bit different. So uh, in general governmentally controlled media is very homophobic and usually they use uh, very old um, outdated stereotypes when they depict LGBT people and this way they form homophobic attitudes in Belarusian society. In addition to this, uh, the government is very homophobic too and governmental officials, they don't afraid to make homophobic statements and of course, these statements are widely covered by governmentally controlled media, and it didn't work good for LGBT community. Too. In your lifetime, the LGBT movement has made um, leaps and bounds, um, both especially in the U.S. Um, in this time period or in your lifetime experience, what do you think the most powerful change has been, and what do you attribute this change to? I think the biggest change is marriage equality in the U.S., and actually, my life, uh, it's really impacted my life. Uh, I was in a long-distance relationship with my partner, from who is from the U.S., the U.S. citizen. And um, we've been in this relationship for 10 years. And I wasn't able to stay in the U.S., so I had to go back to Belarus. So we've been doing this back and forth for 10 years applying for new visa and spending like uh, dozens of uh, hundreds of dollars for the flights and uh, and other expenses just to be able to see each other a couple of times a year. So uh, when the Defense of Marriage Act was struck down at the Supreme Court, we were able to get married and I was able finally to uh, move to the U.S. and be with my partner. So I can see this very important influence and impact on my life. Otherwise, I don't know where would I be today. Probably will be still doing this back and forth. So you mentioned, obviously, the striking down of DOMA as being um, the most influential or major leap um, ahead in terms of gay rights in the U.S. and across the world. But I think Kale and I are interested in the relationship between, you know, legislative change and social change, which drives which, or is it more of a kind of symbiotic relationship? So I'm curious, do you think that the um, striking down of the Defense of Marriage Act and um, achieving marriage equality in the United States, do you think that has precipitated um a change of social attitudes, or do you think that legislative change was the result of an existing change in social beliefs? I think um, I think the social attitudes have been changing slowly, 
Uh, especially, I would uh, as soon as I was already doing this back and forth. So, and I remember the situation. Let's say that Obama's presidency uh, made a very big difference, and I I can see that I saw how the attitudes have been changing slowly, and maybe for some people, the su- Supreme Court de- decisions are maybe too progressive, and. But um, in a few years, nobody even think about same-sex marriage. It will be a normal thing. The Four Directions Aboriginal Student Center, located at 146 Barrett Street, offers resources and services for Aboriginal students at Queen's University. Among its many services, the center offers a Three Sisters Feast Weekly on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. at the center, prepared by staff or a guest chef. The center is open daily, Monday to Friday, and hosts events throughout the year. For more information, visit queensu.ca slash FDASC. Sitting here with Holly Hondrick and Chris Hemer to discuss God Loves Uganda and the implications of the film. Holly, what was the biggest takeaway that you got from watching God Loves Uganda? So yeah, I saw God Loves Uganda two years ago at the Hot Docs Film Festival and was incredibly moved by it. I think what was most startling to me was just seeing how the intolerance and the ignorance that we see um, in Canada and the U.S. towards the LGBT community, although it is incredibly damaging, it's really important to remember that that sort of um, intolerance taken to the extreme can kill. And it's hugely damaging to human life. And that's what we see right now in Uganda, other countries, including Jamaica, perhaps surprisingly to most people, Mm. where homosexuality is illegal. That the sort of intolerance that people, I think, take of as being, it's fine, you know, I just have, I hold these beliefs, but it's not damaging anyone. That's not true. It's not only hurting their feelings, it's actually taking taking away human life. Was there a particular part in this movie that kind of struck that chord with you and helped you understand that? I'm not sure if this is the most meaningful moment for me, but what I found as someone who's an aspiring journalist, um, the director of the film went to a um, a newspaper and was talking to the editor there about sort of how pre- um, prevalent um, homophobia is in Uganda. And so the editor said sort of nonchalantly to the entire newsroom, who here hates gay people? And everyone raised their hand. And I mean, you think of, I at least think of newspapers as being a place of progressive thought, an inclusive place. So to think of it... Um, hatred being that normalized that to me was so so offense so alarming i mean i think now um though homophobia certainly persists in canada i think people who hold those beliefs and are intolerant in that way feel they need to defend themselves um which they should they should not be holding those beliefs whereas the idea that it's so accepted that it's sort of a normal thing to do a normal thing to hate that to me is most alarming so what did the film have to say about where these beliefs come from well, it's a large part of the film was the um, the impact of the Christian right, the um, radical evangelical Christian movement in um, the United States going to Uganda and spreading these beliefs. In many cases, it's young people, um, basically young missionaries, Christian minister, miss, missionaries. This film focused on IHOP, the International House of Prayer, going to Uganda and spreading these beliefs. Um, you know, again, va- based on really selective interpretations of the Bible, um, teaching these young people to hate. And I think it's hard to divorce the fact these young people are bringing often, they're bringing aid. They're caring for these young children, right? So they, they bring all these positive things and then they teach them hate. So it's not, I mean, 
I'd like to believe I'd be impervious to such um, discourse, but if I'm starving and someone is helping me, is showing me love and affection, and then teaches me um, to hate at a very young age, I definitely can see how that'd be influential. Chris, I'd like to ask your opinion of this as well. What do you think? Uh, what do you think about that take on the origin of uh, of this kind of hatred, this kind of perspective? What was most interesting to me in this film was the uh, religious extremism. Historically, we saw the church as uh, a body that would consolidate power through control and by disseminating what they thought was right and what was wrong. And we often forget that this still exists in a lot of countries. We have over 70 countries across the world that uh, hold very strict penalties for being gay. And in the case of Uganda, we have these young foreign missionaries coming, which sort of strikes another historical with many of us in the Western world. Um, but this is still alive and well and happening in a lot of countries. And like Holly said, by using care and aid to spread a, a message of hate in tandem with that, it is quite a contrast. And it's quite shocking to see that someone would take something um, which seems so innocent and um, in good faith and then yet have this not an undertone but a, an overtone of, of, of just pure hatred. So you do see it as connected to that kind of ultimate goal of power consolidation? Well, I think absolutely. We see the church slipping in the Western world. I think a lot of younger generations are are turning away from a religion that is, is not accepting. And we see some churches responding to that and becoming more progressive. And Pope Francis is, is certainly more progressive than some of his, uh, his formers. But I think that by going to places that haven't developed the way and don't have you know the same uh, level of progression in terms of, of different churches and, and social services like we, we have in many countries, I think by bringing these views to places where they are um, they have a population that's more susceptible to them um, because of these other factors like when's your next meal coming or um, When's the medicine coming? You know, we can walk down the street to a hospital, but not everyone has that privilege. And by bringing that to somebody, they become beholden to you, and they're using that as the means to spread their gospel the way they see it. And just speaking on the subject of spiritual leadership again, I wonder what's your take been on uh, the kind of change in direction that we've seen from Pope Francis in uh, changing rhetoric from the Catholic Church? Well, I think it's, it's certainly time that, that something's changed. I mean, religion plays such a huge role in so many lives, and I think that it has many positive factors and many negative factors. I think if we can focus on the good, that's that's certainly helpful, and I think Pope Francis has, has definitely uh, furthered a conversation that hasn't been had in many years. I'm of two minds. I mean, Pope Francis has done so much good so far, in my opinion. He's really done rather extreme things for, you know, arguably the most conservative position in the entire world, and he's fighting against millions of Catholics who are really devout and um, hold their beliefs very strongly. But I do think sometimes it's funny how we're rewarding so little. Like, he's basically, I think, said once we shouldn't hate gay people, and that is, you know, everyone's thrilled about that kind of progression, and he met with that woman, I'm forgetting her name, in the United States who um, denied birth control, um, and I believe her name is Kim Davis, and so yeah. kind of a sign of he's still got one foot in the door. So I certainly echo Chris in that I think Pope Francis has done much, much good, um, but I it's upsetting in many ways to think about how little it is we're celebrating. Right. But I think 
kind of the, the celebration of Pope Francis was a, around a very simple phrase that he used um, that I think kind of speaks volumes to this entire debate, which is uh, he merely said, if somebody is gay and seeks the Lord, who am I to judge? And the premise of that is is basically, um, I think, what what is at the heart of the idea of toleration, which is that to have a society that is a tolerant society, you don't necessarily have to have people who are embracing of different uh, of the diversity in society, but they just need to be tolerant of it, and they just need to be respectful enough to not allow uh, their very personal moral beliefs or ethnic beliefs or religious beliefs or whatever it might be uh, intrude upon the laws that uh, act on all people. And um, But I wonder about that. Do you think that that is what tolerance is about or needs to be about or should it be something more? I'm happy you raised that because I think that there is a very important distinction between tolerance and acceptance. And I think that, you know, you could argue that Canada is beyond the tolerant stage in most most senses. Um, certainly legally we are for moving towards acceptance. And I don't think that tolerance is enough. Mm. I mean, if someone said to me, you know, I tolerate you. Right. I, I, can, I can let you exist around me. That's essentially what tolerance is saying, right? It's saying that, you know, you don't, offend me but I don't agree with you I don't you know and I those kind of saying I tolerate someone reminds me of statements I would hear when I was younger I think that we've progressed far you know I don't believe in being gay but Mm -hmm. whatever and it's that's really a offensive thing to say if you Mm -hmm. think about it so I mean certainly I pray or I shouldn't say I pray in the context of (laughs) this movie but I hope that countries like Uganda and Jamaica move towards tolerance Mm -hmm. but I hope that um, eventually all countries, all people move towards acceptance. So how do we get toward acceptance? Is it the proliferation of more icons just so that people can look at actual lived experiences of gay people who succeeded, who, or just lived normal lives and be able to see it as a kind of example that this is not some kind of fringe lifestyle or some kind of absurd eccentricity, but it is something that can be normal and can be better than normal, can actually be extraordinary in in success. Um, Is that the only way or does there need to be something else? Well, I think think the tenets of of every world religion is to love one another and, and be tolerant and accepting. So there's not a huge difference. The difference stems from these sort of limiting factors of religion, these um, these teachings that aren't ubiquitous across them, but are the ones that say you can't be gay or the ones that say, you know, you can't have sex before marriage. And I think that some churches feel they need to hold on to those things because it's what separates them from the other churches. Mm. And if we forget those things, they might fear that we'll become a singular religion, which in their mind is is not what they want. It's, it, it causes them to lose power. And then on that, also the value we put on things. You know, we're supposed to love thy neighbor, but what if your neighbor's gay? Going off that point about consolidation of power, I think uh, it's important to kind of recognize that issues like race or issues like sexuality and gender identity are essentially very important wedge issues that have been used in political campaigns and labor movements. Uh, for generations, and this is something that, uh, in recent times, the uh, the Sanders campaign in the United States has kind of drawn attention to, to say that um, we should move to a place where we're no longer able to be duped 
in a sense, by uh, raising the specter of race or the specter of gender and uh, sexual identity purely as a wedge issue that would divide people who otherwise should take up uh, the same concerns for their society. I think that's a very valid point, Quinn. I think that when I look at the um, Republican candidates, the remaining ones right now, um, when they talk about you know how they're going to overturn the Supreme Court decision that allowed for gay marriage, they're going to ban Planned Parenthood um, and various other intolerant and offensive things, I just see desperation. And it looks to me like these men now, they're all men, um, sort of lashing out at particular groups in an attempt to consolidate a crumbling Republican base and a crumbling Republican party. This hate is not only offensive, it's senseless, and I think it's just basically a thinly veiled attempt to um, unify people against a certain group because they have nothing to stand for themselves. Yeah, Quinn and I were talking about this earlier. There was an op-ed that came out earlier in the week. Uh, it was talking all about the politics of fear and division and why it is Trump's base is, is so loyal. And uh, it was talking about the lizard brain. <laughs> so essentially the article was talking about how uh, this this base of fear is is so predominant that people are forgetting to to do sober thought when they, they hear these things coming out of his mouth. There's so much fear in the speeches, you know, concerning Donald Trump when he uses language. He he says when an attack from ISIS happens, not if. He says, you know, when uh, Mexico comes across our border to take our country. Um, again, when, not if, and people are becoming so socialized in a way that they, they have a very real fear for these things because they see a man in such a powerful position who's made so much money in his life saying these things that perhaps they want to believe, um, that his his base is only growing because of this, this fear that he's playing into and this fear that is so persistent in America culture these days. It's interesting to think about, you know, what people fear. I mean, one of my favorite signs during um, the protests outside of the Supreme Court this summer was don't like gay marriage, don't have one. And I mean, that to me is more on the tolerance side of things. And I, again, do believe we want to move towards acceptance. Absolutely. And I think uh, maybe one of the best uh, indications of that has been uh, for the longest time, you could ask people in Canada whether or not gay marriage was legal. And many of them wouldn't know. They wouldn't actually know whether or not it was legal. Uh, and I think that kind of goes to show how little impact something like that would actually have on their personal lives unless they were gay and wanted to have a marriage, as simple as it sounds. Um, this notion that it would cause a, uh, you know, the, the disintegration of society's morals if, if a key moral pillar of marriage and what it's supposed to represent was altered, I, I think is, again, something that was uh, a fiction, an invention. It's not an accurate reflection of where society's morals are or where people's personal concerns are. It's, it's funny that we still put marriage on such a pedestal when 50% of them end in divorce. So I think if you have two people that are, are willing to go against those odds and, and get married and, and you know, subscribe to this institution, who cares? What they're, you know, whether or not they have the same gender. I guess if if two people love each other, then then who are we to say that they don't? Okay. I mean, I think that 
Um, we've had a rather diverse group of guests this this week. We had Slava, Queen's Pride Project, um, and of course, John Ibbotson talking about um, Emmett and his experiences in Canada and all the hundreds of gay men who are criminalized um, for their sexuality. And then, of course, um, our screening of God Loves Uganda this past Monday. I think throughout all of that, um, it's important to remember the damage that this sort of intolerance can do. Um, and as, as Chris said, who are we to prevent people from loving each other and from living their lives, particularly when that kind of disinterest, intolerance, and hate um, can kill? From Right of Reply, I'm Quinn Giordano with Holly Hondrick and Chris Hemer. Join us again two weeks from now and follow us on Podomatic.